This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 76 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Happy New Year and happy birthday to Travel Writing World. January marks the third full year of the podcast, which has listeners in over 120 countries and tens of thousands of downloads. So thanks to everyone who has listened to the show. And as corny as it sounds, it truly is a travel writing world. Anyway. Joining me today are Gary Fisher and David Robinson, two historians and academics who recently edited a new volume of essays called Travel Writing in the Age of Global Quarantine. Now, Gary and David are scholars and historians, and this episode touches on some of the academic debates about the genre of travel writing. If this conversation interests you, I recommend that you also go back and listen to episode number 57 which is a conversation I had about these topics with Tim Hannigan. Today's conversation, though, is a critical one about subjectivity's fundamental role in travel literature and in academic and scientific discourse. We also talk about the importance of reading older travel narratives, why personal context enriches literature, and why reading and writing travel writing is important even in an age of global pandemic environmental crisis, and geopolitical turmoil. Anyway, there's a lot going on here, so I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start the episode, though, just a reminder that while the podcast is free, a lot of work goes into it. Please share the podcast with your friends on social media, leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. Anyway, thanks for listening to the podcast. So now, here are Gary Fisher and David Robinson. David, Gary, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having us. Yeah, so I invited you two on the podcast so we can talk about the new anthology of essays you two edited. It's called Travel Writing in an Age of Global Quarantine, Travels in Isolation. We're speaking now in the fourth quarter of 2021, and the book was just published not too long ago by Anthem Press, uh, an academic publisher, which uh, I'm sure we're, we'll, we'll get into uh, speaking about, but perhaps we can uh, just start by, um, I guess, addressing the obvious question here is, uh, what does travel writing look like in an age of global quarantine, or at least what does travel writing look like in this volume? Well, that, that's quite interesting because it's obviously fairly static, which is um, one of the things we were interested in doing is to see whether or not we could produce this anthology without actually moving away from our, our laptops, as it were. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things about that, one of the questions that, that I had was uh, how do 
travel writing practitioners actually write their manuscripts in the first place. Uh, uh, clearly, you go, you go somewhere, you may make a lot of notes, um, and uh, you may do some writing while you're um, on site, as it were. But I suspect that uh, a lot of travel writing practitioners do indeed write up their manuscripts when they come home. Uh, and so we, we wondered if there was actually a great deal of difference. Hmm. Yeah. So what about the the ideas um, of these essays? Like how, what is like kind of, I guess, the formal construction of of this anthology? Like what, what, I guess what I'm asking here is what is the idea of the anthology? Well, I guess kind of the, the background behind it almost kind of started out as a, not quite a joke, but kind of almost like a challenge to ourselves during that first lockdown back in the first quarter of 2020. Um, so David works specifically in travel writing for his, um, his doctorate back then. And kind of, we were, you know, suddenly had this wealth of time on our hands because of the various lockdowns and we decided we could probably use this time to get some writing. And then it was, the, the question became, what could we actually write? I said, well, we're in a situation where we can't, we can't actually leave our houses. There's a certain irony to the fact that you used to leave travel writing, David. Is it possible to actually produce travel writing in an era when we're in our houses? Um, yeah. So I almost kind of started off as a, a challenge or a, or a bet for ourselves to see whether it'd be possible to actually answer this, answer this question about distance between writer and place when writing travel um, literature. Yeah, I, I think also I, I was very keen to address um, uh, head on th- this idea of subjectivity in travel writing. Um, and, and more than that, because I, I, I think what I wanted to do was to show that process actually evolving. And uh, I, I felt that if you could travel, uh, uh, travel in inverted commas, accompanied in inverted commas, w- uh, with a, a historical traveller uh, and cover the same ground and see the things that they saw and experience them, and relate those experiences, I, I thought that we could confront the subjectivity of travel writing um, much better, and that you could see the process evolving of how a contemporary travel writer uh, uh, begins to see that they are constructing a place, often from their imagination, from their thoughts and desires, as much as an objective account. Mm-hmm. And uh, although this issue has been addressed uh, uh, much better by contemporary travel writers. It's not an issue that's really uh, addressed in the, say, post-colonial world that I come from. So um, post-colonial scholars, for example, looking at British travellers to India and to Italy, as I did, don't formally con- confront the subjectivities that they have when they're reading historical accounts. So um, we wondered, um, given that... Uh, uh, given that it's uh, a given that you have to go to a place to um, uh, uh, that you've written about to call it travel writing, I wondered whether you really, as an academic, had to go to that place too if you were going to comment on somebody else's travel writing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably where it started. Okay. Yeah, I like I like this emphasis that you're talking about here um, with praxis and, and process. And and what Gary said that you know the distance between writing and, and the place that someone is writing about. And if you'll if you'll allow me to um, kind of unpack some of the the essays as I understand it, and of course if this is incorrect, then you know, please uh, correct the record. But from from what I understand, the ideas of the these essays is that you have 
um, writers who have a subjective account or an experience of a place who are now in quarantine and obviously not cannot travel to that place. So they're relying on the imagination and their memory to recall the place and write about the place. And they're using, I guess, a, a reference point, uh, another writer, another writer who wrote about the place. And they're kind of the process here is in the fusion, the fusion of these three accounts, the subjectivity, the imagination, and the reference point. Is, is that a kind of a, a fair way to summarize some of these essays? Yeah, I, I think you've probably put that better than uh, we did, Jeremy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> well, so um, I, I guess walk, um, walk us through this because these essays and that, that that's a fascinating kind of point to 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 think about travel writing in terms of process but you know the other thing here that we kind of alluded to earlier is that this is um published by an academic publisher and when i think about academic books i think about dense pages written for specialists you know laden with theory and jargon um and this is not at all what this book uh reads like right so um, is, I guess, how, how can we, I guess, think about this book that's published by an academic press, but it's not quite an academic book? Like, how do we kind of square that circle? It's quite interesting because one of the things we both noticed during the production process of this is how much that, that pitch of this is an academic text and we're working with an academic publisher kind of shifts the way the book is developing, really. And kind of, it's quite interesting to explore that while we were producing it, because the book is all about kind of how your production of literature, of travel literature is affected by different mediums and different barriers and different lenses, and how memory changes, etc. And then kind of while we were actually producing the book, we were then experiencing this further lens, which was changing things, which is we had this relationship with our publisher, who were, they identified that this was the best way for this book to be kind of marketed and packaged, etc. And so kind of the relationship of that was was something we almost ended up exploring during the production process. Um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, David. Yeah, um, well, it's interesting because I've just completed a PhD, which was almost entirely based around travel writing. And yet I was relatively unaware of very much that went on in the contemporary travel writing practitioner's world, as it were. So um, it it's almost embarrassing to say, but the, the subgenre of the in their own footsteps, which we kind of follow, mm-hmm. were, was a whole subgenre that I, I was pretty unaware of. Uh, and I think that there are different groups uh, that are interested in travel writing, uh, and they're, they're really very separate. They don't talk to each other. Uh, so, for example, um, I had colleagues sitting right next to me who were English literacists. And their interest in travel writing uh, might have been, for example, the romantic poets, uh, Byron, Shelley, and so forth. Uh, And their take on travel writing was completely different to mine, um, which was an examination of sort of British attitudes to Italians and to Indians. Mm -hmm. And that is, again, very different uh, to the take on travel writing by somebody like Tim Hannigan, for example. Uh, And one of the, the really interesting things that has come out of this is that those groups don't talk to each other, and yet I think there's an awful lot that they, they could learn from each other. But whether they do or not is, um, to some degree, quite a large degree, dependent upon how the book is packaged and marketed uh, 
by the uh, by the publishers. Um, mm-hmm. So an academic book may well not reach all of those audiences, and um, the same with 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 those other groups. Uh, and um, I, I don't know whether we can say we've tried to make a start on that. Well, we have tried to, um, but I do think that the subjectivities that contemporary travel writers are definitely confronting when it comes to the construction of place. Um, post-colonial historians are well aware of that, but I wonder uh, to what degree they confront their own subjectivities when they're discussing um, historical periods and events. Um, and I think that they perhaps, or we, should do more of that. And I think that's something we could learn from each other. Okay. There, there, what's coming to mind are, are, are a lot of questions. And I want to jump, t- I, want, I want to talk about the subjectivity bit because I think it's fascinating. Uh, but before we do that, you mentioned uh, Tim Hannigan and his new book, The Travel Writing Tribe, you know, attempts to kind of address this gap that you mentioned between the various groups of people interested in, in travel writing. Um, and I, I think your book is trying to also do the same thing that his book is trying to do, um, which is to say that, you know, your book and his book, your, your new anthology is like a hybrid like work. Right. And so you, you'd mentioned David, uh, something about the kind of interdisciplinary, I guess, nature of, of this work. And, and for me, in my opinion, good travel writing is interdisciplinary, right? We have subjectivity, yeah. we have liter- literature, we have culture, we have discourses on politics and history. Um, and in, in this volume, we see even you two uh, as, as historians have kind of different disciplinary backgrounds. But just question before we jump into the next subjectivity bit, like how do we see the interdisciplinarity in, in action here in, in this volume? Uh well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to talk for other people's chapters, so I, I, I probably should best address my own. Okay. Um, uh, what the, um, I took Dorothy Wordsworth, uh, uh, the um, uh, less famous uh, Wordsworth, the, uh, the sister, <laughs> sister of uh, yeah. William Wordsworth, and her trip to um, Glencoe, well, Scotland, but uh, I focused on Glencoe uh, in the very early 19th century. Uh, and I followed her route, um, not deliberately. I, I'm a climber and a hiker, and I love Scotland and Glencoe particularly. So I've visited there uh, many times. And I had certain opinions and attitudes, as it were, uh, to Glencoe that I wasn't really aware of. Uh, and, but my training as a historian, when I, when I was looking at what she had to say about um, the standard of the food or the people or... Um, the way that society was there, I, w- I find it very easy to criticise. Um, uh, uh, well, I say criticise. I, I was. Ve- it was very easy for me to pick out the sort of middle class bourgeois attitudes and the colonial attitudes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but uh, as I was writing my own account next to my analysis of hers, it, it became really evident to me that I was doing exactly the same thing that my views of the certain hotels and how Scotland should be in inverted commas were, were just as um, just as middle-class and bourgeois and uh, through a lens of my own subjectivity as hers were. Uh, and um, I, I'm not saying there are any specific answers to this constructive, uh, so, sorry, this subjective construction of place. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you are able and honest enough to 
formally confront it and say, hey, you know, I come to this place with my own markers of identity and so forth, then at least the, um, the reader is in a position to know that. Mm-hmm. I haven't hidden it from them. And then they're perhaps in a better position to judge what authority I have when I say something about that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So w- one, of the, one of the kind of ways we, we conceptualize that was you, you're kind of, you're not absolving yourself of blame for your subjectivity, but rather you're kind of empowering the reader to interpret that sub- subjectivity, which you bring to any subject you study. So not just travel writing. I mean, if you think of a historian writing about 18th century Venetian history, we like to think we can kind of put, put history and put humanity under the microscope and kind of separate ourselves from it and study it from a distance. But the reality is, if you're someone who's dedicated their life to studying history or dedicated their life to studying um, literature or dedicated your life to studying maths, you've got some interest in that. You've got some passion for it. You're a human being. You can't kind of remove yourself from the world and pretend you're some kind of impartial observer. It, it affects all of academia. This idea that somehow academics can distance themselves from their subject material and treat it like something in a Petri dish completely objectively is utterly nonsense. And it's something we have to acknowledge, not just in travel writing, but in every field of the humanities and I mean, human endeavor at large, to be honest, um, that everyone who studies something is a human being who brings their own subjectivity, their own prejudices, their own expectations, etc. And that inevitably colors what you actually produce and what you actually think of things. Mm-hmm. It's helpful to have, I guess, all the cards on the table um, mm. it, 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 when you're reading a book to to know where someone is coming from, just in terms of, I guess, honesty and for for the writer and also for the reader, there's like an honest exchange going on when everything is on the table. But you know, there there there's been some grumblings in uh, narrative nonfiction about the eye, right? Um, mm-hmm. Specifically about the first person present in nature writing and in travel writing. I remember a piece a few months back um, about nature writing in a in a publication that was just a scathing uh, kind of criticism about the new nature writers and you know, the McFarland's extended universe, I think he said. But uh, conversely, in academic writing, we, we rarely see the first person, right? Um, mm. And so, like, why do you think it, 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 and I know this book isn't particularly an, an academic book, it's a hybrid-like book, it's interdisciplinary, there's a lot going on here. But why might it be important to, to abandon this academic distance, um, not just in travel writing, but also in in historical discourse or academic discourse? Why, why is it important well, not to be self-effacing? Yeah, I, I, I actually think that could be really important. Well, I think it is really important. I, I mean, for example, if you're studying the French Revolution and you come from an aristocratic background or conversely, you come <laughs> from a militant left-wing um, working class background, are you not bringing um, those subjectivities to the study of your of, of the subject? Of course, you are. Right. Um, if you're studying the, uh, uh, if you're a military historian uh, and you're, the, you know, the daughter of a general, you and you've been brought up in the military, you can't help but bring that subjectivity to the table. And um, those might be extreme examples, but um, I, I, I'm not saying that. Uh, that those people shouldn't study those subjects. What I'm saying is that if you are a bit more about the I and you're a bit more upfront about where you uh, where you come from and, and the, the position from which you address this subject, 
um, then it gives the reader some insight um, and they can um, judge for themselves um, what authority you have and, and, and how perhaps they should uh, take what you say. So I don't think there's an answer to this. We are all subjective, as, as Gary very eloquently said. We all live in the world. Um, it's about being honest, I think, about it. So, yeah, I think we're, we're not abandoning that objectivity or that historical objectivity. We're actually just acknowledging that it's a myth in the first place. Because um, mm -hmm. if you think about the I in academic historical literature, the I is being replaced by something else, and the I is usually replaced by the passive voice. So this suggests rather than I think. Um, so we still kind of, we still have that subjectivity, that partiality within academic discourse, but we kind of hide it behind this almost kind of management bureaucratic academic speak where we kind of avoid trying to make it seem like we think anything. When of course we think something. You've written a 7,000 word article about something. You've written a book about something. Of course you've got an opinion on it, but we somehow pretend that no, we're these arbiters of truth who hide behind masks and have no no prejudices and no opinions on anything. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's 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 nonsense. We're not we're not we're not saying abandon it that impartiality. We're saying acknowledge that it is a mask we wear. It's an important part of it. Yeah, that's that. Just side note here. That's why historiography and you know the study of how and and why people are writing history, right? The history of history writing. It's a fascinating mm -hmm. uh, subject to, to look into because it does mm -hmm. address these these questions that you, that both of you are, are, are mentioning here. And when you think about travel writing, yeah, I mean, it, or any kind of writing for that matter, it's, I think, as you guys note, very important to, to know the position from, from which someone uh, comes like the context is, is key. Context is everything. Um, personal context, extremely important. Yeah. Indeed, I think and, that, and, sorry, well, Gary. No, I was going to say, I think, I think that context it should be a strength. It should be something which actually makes this a more compelling, compelling piece of literature. So, I mean, you think, you know, Viktor Frankl's philosophy, Man's Search for Meaning, of course that is all that is all massively enhanced by the fact that Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust right. who survived all these horrible events, and the philosophy he produces as a result, these kind of existential searches for meaning in life, they are massively enhanced, and they are in fact defined by the fact that he went through these horrifying experiences. And by trying to deny that this never have an impact on what we write, we're denying this whole other aspect of human experience that can leak into our work and that can really strengthen it. Um, I spoke over you there, David, sorry. No, I, um, you put that very eloquently. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what uh, uh, exactly I was going to say. I, I, I think the only thing I'd add to that is that, um, uh, just going slightly back a step, um, the, 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 the hiding the eye and using the passive voice is almost um, it's it's almost worse than it seems because the passive voice then carries authority apparently. Um, so oh, because I haven't used I, um, that means that what I'm saying is objective, and uh, um, you know that's a false assumption. Yeah, excellent point. Um, excellent point there that I haven't thought about. As we mentioned earlier, these um, you know these accounts, these these uh, essays. Um, kind of put position like the you know, quarantine writers against their experiences and their memories and another writer who had priv previously um, written about the place that these authors are writing about. Um, so why do you think, um, or what do you think the value is in, in reading these older literary accounts of place? So say, um, 
Jonathan Chatwin uh, wrote an essay in your in your book. What might might the value be in reading these older literary accounts of Wuhan, for for example? Uh, that's as a historian that that that's a question that's so self evident that it's almost difficult to answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, because if we didn't, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> um, but I, I think um, I think this is where the difference between a historian who is uh, deploying travel writing and a travel writing practitioner or a literacist. This is where the difference um, emerges. So there is this cliche, um, although like all cliches, it has a, you know a reasonable amount of truth to it that. Um, uh, travel writing tells you more about the culture um, of the traveller than it does of the travelee, if I can use that word. Um, and that, I don't think that's entirely true, but uh, uh, there, is, there, is, there is some absolute um, um, uh, truth to that. So, for example, um, from, my own, uh, from my own work, uh, the, the travellers that I look at um, to India and Italy in the early 19th century um, are very much um, the, the new, the nascent uh, middle class, if you like. And in all of their comments about other cultures, what you can see is their affirmation of middle class authority at a time in Britain when uh, middle class authority is on the rise, as it were, uh, and the decline of aristocratic authority. Um, so there's a huge amount that can be gained by reading those older accounts. And it's all very well to just dismiss them as. Um, you know, racist imperialists or whatever. And, uh, you know, perhaps many, well, without a doubt, many of them most certainly were. Um, but it also tells you a huge amount about uh, how power structures were constructed and configured in a historical period. And I would argue, for example, that we do not in Britain live in a post-colonial world. We still very much live um, with that construction that was formed by looking at foreign cultures 200 years ago. Um, and then if, if we can see where some of our ideas about how the world works, how we are, how they are, um, if we can see how that has come through a lens of travel writing, which was, uh, after religious writing and perhaps novels, the most popular genre of writing in the, ninth, in the early 19th century, we can perhaps then question our own values, our own beliefs, because we can come to an understanding that, well, I can see how these have developed and were constructed over many years and how we still live with them today. So I, I think that's one uh, real value of reading historical accounts. Mm -hmm. um, what about for non-historians? I mean, um, you know, from, from the academic position or the historical position um and that that makes sense but you know i i get the sense that kind of these older accounts are are shunned or not read as much by current readers um for whatever reason um and, and i think you do make a pretty solid defense here for for reading these older accounts even problematic ones like of, of doers of evil right <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> we need we need to uh understand how power was constructed in the past and, and, and question our own kind of contemporary world through mediated through these older texts. I think that's important um, for the critical person. But what about, I don't know, for someone, 
you know, this is a hybrid work. What about for the non-historian, for the non-academic, for the casual reader? Is there any value in that? Oh, well, I think there's more value. Yeah, more I mean, at the risk of seeming more optimistic then, David, in many ways, you know, <laughs> travel writing is about experiencing other places, about experiencing other worlds. And when you read historical travel accounts, you're not only being transported to a different geographical region, you're being transported to a different chronological space. Um, so, I mean, obviously, David and I both have a historical bent because we're both historians, so we enjoy studying the past. But I think kind of it's, it's about that window into the human experience. I mean, you know, I've got an auntie who is not a historian at all, but she was enjoying reading some nautical books. So I got her a, a journal of an 18th century whaler and sent that over to her. And she absolutely loved reading that. She's not a historian, but she just loves the experience of reading about what life was like for different people in different time periods and different places of the world. So I think there is something which is eternal about travel literature because you've got that window onto a, one person's view of a period in the past. Um, and I think that's something which is relevant and interesting to anyone or you know anyone interested in the human experience yeah um, and it's also I, I, go ahead david sorry yeah i, I was going to say I, i'd actually go a step further um I, I i don't think it's too much to say uh that many of the recent values and ideas uh that have arisen in um brexit britain and the u.s uh, of course in 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 the last uh four and a bit years, um, it, it, it are very much based around the past. It, these, it seems to me, the US and the UK particularly, are countries that, um, unable to confront their past, um, can't really see a future that, that isn't tied up with a, a, a mythical past, really, of what these countries used to be. Uh, and I think if we could um, expose the general public to a, a readable, accessible um, kind of narrative of travellers in the past, then I think that maybe then they could see that some of these ideas that they don't perhaps haven't perhaps researched but take for granted are actually constructions, uh, and I think that that might be hugely valuable, mm-hmm. particularly in the, the uh, today's um, rather fraught world. Yeah. But I'm hearing in in the defense of travel reading, I'm also hearing a defense of travel writing or how and why it might be important for people who do explore and travel uh, to sit back and and reflect and and think critically about those experiences and and commit those experiences to paper as an artifact uh, for future generations to kind of dig into and, and, and wrestle with. I think that the defense of travel reading is also a defense of uh, travel writing, uh, something that's been kind of <laughs> uh, on its heels of, of late, uh, especially with the, the concerns about the environment and carbon emissions and things like that. Yeah, and, and um, of course, those those latter things that you mentioned are incredibly problematic. And, uh, you know, apart from putting a knapsack on your back and walking um, you know, somewhere. Uh, I, I don't know how we can get around that, but uh, that I think you're absolutely right. I think that travel narratives and uh, uh, the, the experience of uh, the experiences of other places and other people and bringing those to light are incredibly important. And I think that um, not so much in academic travel writing, but in uh, more contemporary. Um, uh, 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 travel writing practitioners such as Tim Hannigan or Jonathan Chatwin and um, Emma, um, 
Emma Cole, for example, in our in our volume writes a fantastic piece about living with the Bedouin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that the the value of that necessarily outweighs the environmental problem. Of course, you can't really put those on scales, but the importance of these of these people's writing is can't be un, can't be overstated, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. To an extent, as well, with the environmental situation we're in, etc. In a way, travel writing becomes almost more important because as fewer and fewer people are able to can reasonably travel abroad and experience different cultures, this will increasingly become one of the the main media through which we can actually experience the world outside of outside of our doorstep kind of thing. You know, we're, one of the first questions you asked was how does global quarantine change change travel writing? How does how do these various restrictions on travel change this this genre, this medium? Um and the reality is in many ways it puts a lot more a lot more importance on it and a lot more stress on it and a lot more pressure on it because suddenly this becomes one of those ways of transporting a person from your culture into a different culture to experience it. It becomes the medium through which you can experience the wider world. Mm-hmm. Um, Quarantine might be the norm, uh, if not yeah. if not due to virus uh, because of climate catastrophe or war or have your pick. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But in in many ways, it's quite. In many ways, that changes that puts more pressure on travel writing as a stresses its importance as a medium. But also, in many ways, it keeps it almost back to its roots because this became a way of experiencing travel writing as a way of experiencing the world outside your door for people who aren't available able to go there. And that's kind of almost always what it's always been. Um, This era we're living in of mass travel, the era we were living in of mass travel, is in many ways the blip. Um, so these quarantines, these environmental disasters, these fuel crises, et cetera, et cetera, in many ways, we're kind of getting back to the roots of travel writing, where it's a way of conveying the world outside of home back to those back home. Mm-hmm. Of, of course, there is a, a problematic aspect to that, which is that uh, travel writing has, uh, for the vast majority of its uh, existence, um, thousands of years, um, being predominantly the preserve of the relatively well off the middle classes, the elite white um, uh, male. Uh, And um, it's interesting that uh, whilst we make strenuous efforts to make education, higher education, uh, accessible to those who don't come from that environment, um, there's there's no real attempt to do that in travel writing. So um, travellers do still tend to be white male and middle class, I think, uh, and it would be interesting to make some specific attempt um, to uh, fund people who are not from those backgrounds to go out and describe uh, places and people from their experiences, from their markers of identity, and learn what they have to say about the situation. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your dog agrees. Uh, with apologies, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And I'm just wondering here, um, you know, if this new kind of mass media landscape that we find ourselves in with the internet if you know this might be i guess the avenue through which underrepresented voices uh can share their stories in a in a better way a more in in a way that reaches people that wouldn't otherwise have access to those stories so through yes uh, tiktok and instagram and Mm -hmm. blogging and youtube and you know, these, this new wonderful world, world that we find ourselves in, mm-hmm. I think that's a great opportunity to to kind of open the lid on on that. 
And unfortunately, yes, absolutely. And I, I think also that the um, the academic world, the strictly academic world, would probably eschew those um, those mediums. But right. I think it should open itself up to them and uh, uh, and um, start to think about different ways of communicating about place and people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just worried. I'm sorry, Gary. I, um, I'm just worried here about the. You know the the role of the traditional publisher in in, in this all might be doubling down on. I I don't want to say conservative values, but what increasingly looks like a conservative situation in terms of being gatekeepers and overseers of who gets published and what gets published. Yeah, I mean that without without a doubt. I mean, who reads your book is very much dependent upon how the uh, publisher decides to uh, uh to package it mm-hmm. and whether they decide to uh whether they decide to at all and uh to a large degree you or to some degree i, I think anthem have actually been very good with us that they've published this book as an academic book when clearly it is a crossover a, 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 a critical literary crossover um I, I just hope that more publishers can see the interdisciplinary aspects of writing like this and um, and we can think more about how these subjects can be brought to public attention. I mean, we very much when we um, when we recruited these writers, and we've been incredibly fortunate. And maybe it maybe it says something about the theme that we picked on is that we had a small idea, uh, and um, we had incredible enthusiasm from everybody that that came on board, wanted to take part in this project which I think tells you something uh, about the value that, that people think is, it can be gained from travel writing. Uh, and I hope we can convey that to, um, to publishers as well, and that we can have a, a, a breaking down of these barriers between academic writing and more publicly accessible writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry, Gary, I think I spoke over you a few moment, moments ago. Did, did you want to? Um, oh, yeah, because you, you mentioned about kind of digital media and almost kind of democratization of travel writing at one point. Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking back to so, so my, my background is kind of in 19th century and 18th century American periodicals. And kind of, well, when you think about what appears in these newspapers and these periodicals, one of the articles you see time and time again is the kind of letters home from people who visited abroad. So quite often, maybe it's the kind of American version of the grand tour where European aristocrats would go and tour Rome and um, Greece and so forth, and Americans would go and do the same sort of thing. And so kind of in many ways, while travel writing, we now view it as this kind of, as you say, it's kind of gatekeeped, bar or gatekeep, whatever the term would be, by these kind of, these printing houses and these publishers. Um, these, the video lo- video blogs and these kind of blogs and these kind of digital ways of conveying travel writing to a kind of popular um, open source audience, those are in many ways the heritage of this as a medium and this as a genre. Um, Kind of it's it's a mass market mass appeal kind of thing really mm-hmm. yeah, it's fascinating to see where uh this will all go um especially moving forward into 2022 and uh beyond but uh yeah just f- very fascinating uh subject i haven't been able to read the entire volume yet but what i did read was you know just kind of lighting up the synapses uh, really really good stuff but uh gary and david gary fisher david robinson thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on the podcast and we wish you the very best with your new volume thank you very much jeremy Been yeah thank you. 
thank you for giving us the opportunity to come and speak to you. It's been really nice to talk about it. As I'm sure you can tell, we're both very enthusiastic <laughs> about the subject and the, the opportunity to, to vent into a microphone has been very, very well appreciated. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. 